Everybody has a different definition of what a Christian life consists of for some. You know, they're going to say it's more in what we believe. Others are going to say it's more in what we do. I think it's a combination of the two centered on the person of Jesus. You can't have a Christian life unless we lay down our sin and invite Christ to forgive us and come in and save us and take over. Uh, But beyond that, right, there are certain things that need to be a part of that Christian walk for us to be able to say that it's an effective Christian life. And so what we're looking at in this series are the nuts and bolts. We're identifying some of those practical elements of a Christian life that we can say is effective, it's thriving, it's growing. But then for each one of those, whether it's prayer or whether it's um, living in community with one another, whether it's serving, whatever it may be, we're kind of putting it under the microscope and we're looking looking at some practical things that we can do to help incorporate that one aspect of the Christian life into our own lives a little better. And so we're looking at all the practical elements of it. You're familiar with this, right? Because when you use that phrase, the nuts and bolts, you're talking about the practical parts of of that topic. Say, for example, if I mentioned, hey, we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of the game of basketball, right? It's going to not be the theory. It's not going to be the history of basketball. It's not going to talk about Naismith who invented it and put a peach basket on a tree somewhere. We're not going to talk about all that aspect of it. The nuts and bolts of the game of basketball gets down to the nitty gritty. It gets to the inner workings of that game. How many of you have ever been to an eight and under basketball game at the Y or the Boys Club? Any of you? All right, the, the nuts and bolts of the game at eight and under, and I've coached at that age, um, not when I was eight, I've coached eight and under players, I guess you could say. The nuts and bolts of basketball at that point is dribble, shoot, pass, all right? That's about it. Because they, and, and every parent in the building is yelling one of those three things at the same time. But as those kids get older and they begin to stick with it and they begin to practice and they begin to play not just 10U or 12U, but they begin to play for their middle school team or their high school team or they go off to play in college, well, the nuts and bolts get a little bit deeper. It, it, it gets to the inner workings of the game of basketball. It gets to the more practical elements of it. It's not just dribble, pass, shoot. Those things never go away. You constantly still do those things, but you're also talking about different offensive schemes and how to play man defense and how to play zone defense and different types of zone defenses. You're talking about what type of press to, to uh, apply if you're wanting to, to press a team on defense, you're talking about how to break a press. If another team is, is, uh, is pressing, you're talking about all these different aspects. Those are the nuts and bolts of the game of basketball. And that applies to anything. You can look at the nuts and bolts of what it means to cook a meal. You can look at the nuts and bolts of working with wood. You can look at the nuts and bolts of virtually anything. And when you use that phrase, what you're talking about is, help me to see the practical aspects, not the theory behind that topic. Help me to see the practical aspects of that particular topic. And so that's what we're doing. We're looking at the, the, the Christian life and effective Christian life. What are the nuts and bolts of that? What does it consist of after we give our lives to Jesus? And then even there within those elements, what are some practical things that we can do to help do those things better? And so in this series, that, that's what we want to aim for. And I'll say, hopefully for some, this series at different times is going to spray a little WD-40 on those nuts and bolts because sometimes they, they bind, sometimes they get rusted into place. Sometimes we realize, wow, I didn't even know that was such an important part of the Christian life. I, I never really realized that's what worship is. I always thought it was just singing a song. And if I like the song, then I sing louder. And if I don't like the song, well, I grumble about it and wish we played different music, right? And, and you begin to realize maybe as we look at that element of worship, Maybe we can spray some WD-40 and you'll see worship from a different way and you can see some practical aspects of what worship looks like. The same with Scripture, the same with influencing our world for Christ. 
And so hopefully this series will make a, will make a difference in a very practical way. And so this morning, we, uh, we jump into the very first aspect, the very first element of the Christian life we're going to look at over these next few weeks in a message simply entitled, Read the Book. Read the Book. I shared before a few years ago, I think I've only shared this on one occasion, that my mom gave me a very special Christmas gift a number of years ago. She passed away this May, Memorial Day weekend will be five years since she, uh, since she passed away. She's in heaven now because she knew Jesus. But she gave me a gift. Actually, I should backtrack and say over 20 years ago, I gave her a gift one Christmas, and it was a, uh, a book that I had purchased. It was already made and bound. I didn't make it myself, but it was designed for her as a mom to fill out the pages in answer to the questions that were asked through this journal. And I forget what it was called, a mother's journal or something along those lines. Many of you have seen those before. And uh, I gave one to my dad as well. I guess it's a man thing. I never got one back from my dad. And uh, I, I don't know if he gave much thought to it at all. <laughs> and uh, that was my dad, and that's most all of us as guys in this room probably. But, uh, but my mom, five years later, gave it to me back again for Christmas. And she had filled out every single answer to the questions that were asked. And uh, there were only one or two times she said, I don't really like that question. Let me tell you about this story. And, uh, and true you know, to my mom, there were other pages that when she ran out of room, she would write it on another page and sort of tuck it in there. And it was just this treasure that she gave to me. And whenever I look through that particular book, what I hear is her heart. And what I hear are the stories that made her who she was. And, and I read names of people that meant something to her. And there are some times, I'm sure, if you were to fill out the same thing, you would name names of people who were special. And you would tell stories to help kind of unveil who you are to whoever would read it later. You would probably put some words of encouragement, right? You would put some, some words of admonition. You would put some warnings in there. Maybe you would even say, here's what I've learned along the way. This is going to be helpful for you. Well, what if God gave us a book like that? What if God wrote a book like that about himself? And what if in that book he included stories about himself that helps us to know him a little better, help us to see him a little bit more clearly? What if in that book that God put together for us, this special gift, and when he gave it to us as we open it and begin to read it, what if there were admonitions in there that will help us to learn to live life a little bit better? What if there were some warnings in there that said, hey, stay away from this? Not because I tried it and failed, but this is just a warning to you that you need to choose a different path than this path? What if in the book that God gave us, there were promises and there were encouragements and there were things that would help us when we were down low and there were things that would help keep us grounded whenever we kind of rise to the mountaintop so that we don't think more highly of ourselves than we should? What if God gave us a book like that? Well, the cool thing is, and you know the answer to this because you're sitting in church, he did. He has given us that kind of a book, and it's called the Bible. And when we open up this book called the Bible, it is written for the express purpose of revealing to us who he is. And when we open the pages of Scripture, it is this amazing collection of smaller individual books, 66 to be exact. And as we read through them, Many of them read differently because they were written by God through people, through their personalities. Some read like poetry, others read like narratives, others, they read like a, like a history book, and yet all of it being true. 
And in the midst of it all, God has given us this book ultimately to peel back his heart and to reveal himself for who he is. And in this book, he gives us things to, to be warned about. And he says, hey, don't go that way. And, and he tells us things to pursue. Hey, go this way. And he gives us promises and he gives us encouragements and he shares stories of things, not where he failed, but where others who went before us fell short. And he says, don't do that. And he gives us this incredible collection that we call the Bible of a revelation of himself. And in that, what he helps us to see is the light that we need to walk in a way that honors him. And there are times where this word is like a flashlight. And many of you have experienced that, where you were praying and you were confused and you, you went to his word and somewhere along the way, it was just like a big light bulb went off and you saw through his word and the Holy Spirit using that, like, man, this is the way to go. It was a light that shined into your circumstance. Sometimes God's word is an alarm. It just wakes us up and it puts things in perspective. Many of you have read in scripture, and there's been a time where as you open the pages of God's word, he just used it to rattle your cage. and to, It's almost like to wake you up, to shake the cobwebs and, and, and to, to, to repurpose your whole life. He's used his word at times to, to, to make you think, what am I doing? I mean, wh- wh- why am I here? Why am I doing this? I, I, I need to go a different direction. And it was his word that he used to accomplish that. Sometimes his word is like a, it's like a mold that, that molds and shapes us. Sometimes it's like a knife that whittles off the things that, that don't look like him. You ever been to Gatlinburg or Helen, Georgia, and you go to those places and it's all mountainy and, you know, they got all the mountain stuff. And, and uh, sometimes you'll see in these, these stores, they'll have a, a log like about this high, about three feet high, and it's whittled out. You've seen these like in the shape of a, of a bear, right? If you were to ask the guy who whittled it, how did you do that? A very simplistic answer would be, well, I just whittled off everything that didn't look like a bear. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's, that's kind of what God's word does. Sometimes it's that knife, and it's not always comfortable, but it whittles away those attitudes that don't reflect Christ. It whittles away those things that don't look like Jesus, and ultimately it's for our good. It's for, it's for our life. It's for our benefit. Sometimes his word is a teacher. Sometimes his word is a coach that trains us. Jesus spoke about God's word in John 17, and, and uh, speaking to the Father, he said, your word is truth. There's nothing in here that we need to be careful with in a sense of, wow, I don't know if that's true. Every bit of it's true. You look in Scripture and you look at how it speaks of itself. Look at what it says on the overhead here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at what Paul said to the believers in Thessalonica about God's Word. He said, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Paul compelled these Thessalonian believers to embrace the simple truth that the scriptures that they had were not words of Paul, they were words from God. Paul would say much the same thing to Timothy as kind of his young son in the faith, protege in ministry. Look at what it says here in 2 Timothy. Paul is speaking yet again of scripture, and he says in chapter 3, verse 15, he said that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith 
which is in Christ Jesus. Listen how he describes Scripture. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There there, there are four things that Scripture does. Two of them are formative. It, it, It trains us and it teaches us. When we spend time in God's Word, it is formative in nature. It's going to instruct you. It's going to teach you. But it's also going to train you and prepare you for the battles of this life. Because life is hard and life is unfair and life sometimes hurts. And Scripture is what preps us. It's what forms us in that. But Scripture is also corrective. And there have been times in my life where I've desperately needed Scripture to correct me because I was going a wrong direction or I was thinking incorrectly and Scripture is corrective. Paul says that it's, it's um, useful for reproof and for correction. Look at what he says in the next verse, in verse 17. This, this ties in so well with this series. He says, so that, right? The Bible is all of this, he says. God's given it, and, and, and he's made it what it is so that, here's the purpose, so that the man, or we could say as well, the woman of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. In other words, there is a reason behind the giving of God's Word. He has given it to us so that it can mold and shape us into those who are adequate, those who are equipped for every single work that God may have for us to do. In other words, the Bible is essential. It is an essential element. It is part of the nuts and bolts of an effective Christian life. You can't have an effective walk with God, an effective Christian life, separate from reading the book, separate from time in God's Word, any more that you or I can have an effective marriage separate from spending time with our spouse. (laughs) I mean, you can't have a deeper friendship with anybody. You you can't develop a close friendship and say, I'm going to have a much closer friendship with this person in my life, but I want to do it separate from time spent together. It doesn't work that way. One of the nuts and bolts of building relationship is actually spending time together. And for us, if we're going to have an effective Christian life, it has to include time spent specifically reading the book. So let's look at a couple of examples in the scriptures, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, of what it looked like when people became people of the book, when they began to read this book that we call scripture. The first in the Old Testament. You've got your spot there in Nehemiah 8. Let me kind of explain a little bit of the backstory before we jump in and read in Nehemiah chapter 8. So the setting there in Nehemiah is towards the close of the Old Testament. Now understand, if you open your, just your Old Testament, Nehemiah is going to be sort of in the middle of that Old Testament. And it's not, the Old Testament's not written chronologically, neither is the New Testament for that matter. But the setting of this passage in Nehemiah 8 is towards the close of Old Testament history, about 400 years, 450 years, give or take, before Jesus would be born. The people of Israel had been disciplined for their sin. They had spent time in Babylon, a foreign land with foreign false gods. They had then been set free from that captivity. They have had come home again to Israel, but they were refinding their identity and they were refinding their nationality. They had a city in Jerusalem with no wall around it and they had lost their identity as the people of God. So God raises up a couple of leaders. One is a man by the name of Ezra. He would be the priest 
And then another man by the name of Nehemiah, Nehemiah would be sort of the volunteer coordinator. And he had more responsibility than that. He had worked for the government back in, uh, in Babylon, so to speak. But he would be the man that God would use to assemble all the volunteers of Israel to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. They were now going to regain their identity as a people, and they were soon to regain their closeness to God again. Ezra would be the priest. He would be the one that would bring the word to the people. Look at how the book that bears his name, the book of Ezra, chapter 7, look at how uh, Ezra is described here in Ezra 7, verse 10. Just look at it on the overhead. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, not just study it, but to also put it into practice. Those two things need to always be married together, not just studying God's word, growing in our knowledge because knowledge puffs up with pride. We need to grow in our knowledge up here between the ears, but we also need to put it into practice uh, through the lives that we live. Ezra did this. He studied the word of God, the law of the Lord, to practice it, and also he went a further step to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So now the people are all gathered together. They're back in Jerusalem. They have no wall around their city. Nehemiah comes up, rallies the troops. He says, hey, we're going to build this wall. They face opposition on the inside. They face opposition on the outside. 52 days later, this wall is done. It is an amazing work of God. And now the attention turns from the physical reconstruction to the spiritual reconstruction on the inside. This is what gets us to Nehemiah chapter 8. Look at what the centerpiece of this revival was. It was becoming people of the book. Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's take a look at what this says here, beginning in verse 1. So it says, All the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. The water gate was simply a specific entrance into the city of Jerusalem through the newly built wall. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, he is the priest, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Now remember, we're 400, 450 years before Jesus is born. There is no no New Testament in existence. What is this law of the book of Moses? It's what they call the Pentateuch. It is the first five books of your Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That would have been their scriptures. Now, they would have had the prophets that would have spoken as well. This is what it's referencing there, the book of the law of Moses. And so they asked Ezra to take that portion of what we would call the Bible to bring it and to ultimately share it. And so they asked him to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So you got everybody assembled, all the people of Israel, anyone who was old enough and able to understand, they assembled them here and this square at this gate so that this man, Ezra, could bring that law, that portion of the scripture, and be able to, to read it and to teach it. And so it says in the next verse that he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. Now, we just had another service before this one at nine o'clock, and I told that group They were getting off easy. 
because I was going to preach my typical amount of time. We were going to be out at the normal time. They were going to go shuffle on over to the fellowship hall and get some free refreshments and coffee and then go on to a grow group for them. They were getting off easy, and it's the same for you. You know I'll be done here in about 15 minutes, give or take, and you know we're going to wrap things up here, and then you're going to go fight for a seat with the Methodists and the Presbyterians at the restaurant, and you're going to get your food, or you're going to go home and thank God that your house didn't burn down with your roast in the oven. And you kind of know what to expect. Well, if we were back in this day, I mean, Ezra's just getting cranked up about now, and he would have started much earlier than where we are this morning. It says that they were assembled from early morning until midday. He's reading the word in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. Look at this next part. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Why were they so attentive? Because they had just come out of, of a bondage, and, and they just come out of, of, of basically uh, uh, being exiled to a whole different land where God wasn't honored. I mean, these people were hungry, and they were thirsty, and they were dry on the inside. Jesus would later say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they'll be filled. They were hungry, and they were thirsty. And now the book is just being opened, and right here on this spot in Nehemiah chapter 8, these people are becoming people of the book all over again. It says, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood, <clears throat> say a quick prayer for me if you will, Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. <laughs> Preaching 101, for those of you that may desire one day to preach or teach, Preaching 101, when you read names like that, you're probably going to get them wrong, just read them with confidence. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who's going to correct you, really? Hey, I think you messed up that third name, right? Just, just sound like you're somewhat confident. Who knows if you actually, actually got it right. So he names all these names. To me, isn't it cool that these people made it into the book? I mean, really, really neat. That what they did is they explained the Scriptures was of such significance that God said, I'm going to be sure they're named in there. That's <laughs> just really cool. So Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen, while, they, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Round two. This one's a little tougher. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. There's not a bob in the whole list, right? <laughs> they explained the law to the people. Isn't that something, man? Now you got the priest reading the word. And all scattered throughout that crowd, assembled there in the square in front of the water gate into this newly walled city. You've got people that are just working the crowd 
explaining as they go. If you teach God's Word, whether it be formally in a group setting in this church, whether it's informally through some type of a little Bible study over lunch in your workplace or with a couple of neighbors, God values that so greatly. They're scattered throughout here, and they're explaining the Word of God as they scatter through those people. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. If you were to go further in that chapter, we want today, you'll see that the people sort of uncovered one of the feasts that they had overlooked, and they began to to crank that feast celebration up again, and it came because of their reading of God's Word. Old Testament people assembled in front of the water gate. What would you say is one of the nuts and bolts of an effective walk with a God who created you? Their answer would be, we need to be people of the book. We need to read the book. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus comes. He shares a message of himself as Messiah that he would one day die and give himself and rise again for the sins of the world. And he does exactly that. He, com- he fulfills that prophecy. He does indeed die. He does indeed die for the sins of the world. And he does indeed rise from the dead the way he said he was going to. He ultimately, 40 days later, ascends back to heaven, back to the Father's side. He's going to come back again. But he goes back to the Father where he still is today. But he had said that when I go away, it's going to be to your benefit because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, he will comfort you and he will guide you into all truth. And so Jesus is now gone from the scene. He's back returned to the Father. The believers are assembled together. And just as he said, the Holy Spirit comes. It's a game changer moment because the Holy Spirit now doesn't just come upon select people at certain times. He now indwells those who place their faith in Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus today, God lives in you. The Holy Spirit has taken residence in your life. That's why he says you'll never be alone, you'll never be forsaken, you'll never be pushed aside, you always have God with you. And so the, the, the believers uh, uh, see this and they experience this happening. Acts chapter 2, there's a large assembly of people. Peter, who just was the biggest chicken on the face of the earth, couldn't even own up to the fact that he even knew Jesus or even knew his name previously. Now, He's standing with boldness, proclaiming the message of the gospel. Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people believe in the message. They place their faith in Jesus. Their lives are radically changed. They have a spot reserved for them in heaven. They're baptized that specific day, and the church is born. And you've got now this brand new movement, not an institution, a movement of people who are called the body of Christ, and they've now been redefined through their relationship with Jesus. And it tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, a little bit of what the nuts and bolts of this new life was. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There are actually four nuts and bolts of a, of a Christian walk right there, but the first one is what we're looking at this morning. Hey, newly defined Christians who just heard Peter preach and placed your faith in Jesus, what do you think one of the nuts and bolts is of now your new Christian walk? Oh, one of the nuts and bolts we say would have to be, we must become people who read the book. (laughs) They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Remember, half of the Bible that you have, they didn't have in theirs. They didn't have the New Testament. It was being lived out. They were living the New Testament. 
They didn't have it bound and, and, and in, a, in a manuscript form. They, they were seeing it happen before their very eyes. And when they heard the apostles' teaching, numerous of those apostles would later write pages that you hold as the New Testament. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In essence, they devoted themselves in a very real sense to God's Word. It was part of the fabric of who they were. It was a necessity. It was one of the nuts and bolts of their effective walk with Jesus. Two principles I want to give you this morning, and then we're going to look at some practical things as we close. The first principle is this, and I hope you'll jot these down, that when you think of an effective Christian life, an effective Christian life requires the nuts and bolts of personal Bible study. It requires it. You know, when, when, <clears throat> when I put together this statement, this, this principle, there are a couple of words that are there that are, that are there for a reason that are important. The first word is the word requires. As I said earlier, you are not going to have, and I would not have as effective of a Christian walk, closeness with God as we could if we try to live out that Christian life separate from time spent in God's Word. And hear me on this. It doesn't matter how how much and, and how well we worship or how much of a heart we have to serve or how much we love our neighbors as we love ourselves and share within the message of the gospel. It doesn't matter what elements, other elements of the Christian life we do well. We are not going to be as effective as we could be. And we actually put ourselves in real danger if we do not become people of the book because reading this book, living it out, is one of the required nuts and bolts of the Christian life. It's that important. It's required. That's why I don't preach out of Sports Illustrated on Sundays. I mean, it, it, it's, I mean, I use illustrations at times, you know, but the, the, this book is central to what we do here. When you go to a grow group, that, that, that's, this is what you use. I mean, there may be other studies, there are other things that get incorporated into it, but when it all boils down, it comes back to this book. That's why this is so important. That's why the ladies just started a Bible study during the weeknight, on a weeknight, and they're studying this because it's that important. It's essential. It's a nut and a bolt of, of, of an effective walk with Christ. But here's the thing. It's not just any type of study. It has to be personal Bible study, which leads us to the second principle. And again, I hope you'll jot this down. The second principle much like the first, that every single believer, if we're going to be people of the book, have to ultimately learn to self-feed from God's Word on our own. We have to learn to self-feed, meaning we cannot be dependent solely on other people feeding us. We have to learn to feed on this ourselves. For Susie and me, our kids are now they're getting a little bit older. Hannah's ninth grade, Drew's seventh grade, April's third grade. So our youngest is now nine years old. April just turned nine on uh, December 30th. So th the days of, of spoon feeding are over, right, for us. I, I guarantee you they can well feed themselves. <laughs> and I remember those days when they were younger and... Uh, those were good those are good memories. I mean, those, those were really neat days to be able to, to feed our children. They're six months old, you're feeding them. And, and some of you, you remember that. And, uh, you know, you kind of become a different person. You're like, oh, these look so good. You know, you're doing all that kind of stuff. 
And it's just so cute, you know, but I got to admit, there was an element of it. It was the grossest thing on the face of the earth. Some of you know, I mean, I got some quirkiness going with food. There, some of my food I don't like to touch. I don't mind my Cap'n Crunch touching my milk, but um, don't put my green bean juice up in my mashed potatoes because that's just gross. And so um, spoon feeding, you know, just blended up, mixed up green peas was not always appealing for me. It was just kind of a, you're like, oh, this is so good. <laughs> Susie, can you just wipe their chin, please? <laughs> and so, uh, but we made it, we survived, and I'm not too scarred as a result of it. Um, you know, it's cute when you're spoon feeding it at six months old, right? When they hit 36, if I'm still feeding them peas and carrots, with a spoon and a bib, that's not so cute, right? It's not designed to work that way. Here's the thing for us. When we think of being an effective Christian, having an effective Christian walk, I should say, meaning we, we have a walk with God. It's not perfect because we're not perfect. We're all works in process. God is molding and shaping and growing us. But when we think of an effective Christian walk, we think that by and large, this is a walk that's in growth mode. It's in a growth trajectory. We are, we are maturing in our faith. We are taking new steps to trust Christ. We, we're, we're just in growth mode. We, we are, we're hitting the bullseye, really, of what God wants us to as, as a follower of Jesus. That when we think of that, we cannot stay at the place where the only feeding of God's Word that we get is from other people. It's important. Church is important. I mean, it's a New Testament concept. It, 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 is, it is a good thing. It is positive. It is biblical for us to assemble and to have others teach and to pour into us. That, that is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. But if it's the only feeding we get from God's Word, we are not going to be as effective in our walk or close to God as He wants us to be. And we're going to miss something as a result. Here, here's why it's so important that we learn to feed on God's Word on our own. Because you think about your favorite Christian teacher or speaker, whoever that is, you know, on the radio or online that you love to listen to. I've got a a, a variety of people, and they're very different one from the other of people I like to hear. But when I come to a place in my life where I'm going through a challenge or I'm going through a, a time that's, that, that's just very difficult or I'm at the end of myself, listen, one of those radio preachers isn't going to be there to grab me by the hand and walk me through. It doesn't matter who you like, David Jeremiah, Charles Stanley, Andy Stanley, Beth Moore, whoever it is, as good as it is to sit under their teaching, when your world falls apart, they're not going to come knocking on your door and say, brother, let me just remind you about John chapter 17. We have to be at a place where we can feed on, on his word on our own. It doesn't mean become a scholar, but to learn some basic principles of feeding. When we go through a time where we're challenged in our faith and our world is shaken and, and we just we feel so weak in our faith, casting crowns isn't going to show up and do a little concert. We have to learn to feed on His Word so that day in and day out and week in and week out and month in and month out and year in and year out and decade in and decade out, God has just poured into us because we've been people of the book. We've read the book as a nut and bolt of our walk with Him. And over time, He builds growth and He builds maturity. And when we go through those times and when you're tempted on a Saturday night and there's nobody else there to hold your hand and walk you through, it's God's Word that comes back to mind to lead you through that temptation lead you through that hardship, lead you through that time of confusion, speak into your life and, and, and guide you. 
But that, that's not going to be there. If we're not able to self-feed ourselves. And man, hopefully for us here at this church, I hope we set the table every Sunday. I think we do to bring God's word both here in this room and in our grow groups that take place. But I hope we are able to put some tools in your hands to learn to self-feed on your own. So let me just close today over these next couple of minutes by just covering about seven things that can be just kind of some helps to help develop that, that nut and that bolt, right, of personal Bible study. We've got all seven of them up here together. I'm just going to walk through them quickly one by one. So th- these are some practical things. Remember, the whole scope of this series hopefully is going to aim towards the practical. And um, I want to lay out how they did it in the early church. Most every aspect of the Christian walk that we cover, I'm going to try to attach it to the, the early church especially, but also put some real practical tools in your hand. So here's some. You can jot them down and uh, hopefully use them for yourselves. I'd say the first of the nuts and bolts of personal Bible study, learning to self-eat on God's Word, and this sounds odd, but it's to use the Bible. Use the Bible. It doesn't mean you don't have genuine, legitimate worship when you listen to some of your favorite Christian artists. Certainly, that takes place. It doesn't mean it's, it, there's no value to reading a devotional written by one of your favorite Christian authors or writers. Certainly, there's value to that. But especially if you're starting out, what you want to be certain of is that you spend time in here because this is without error and this is what God wrote. And so we want to spend time using the Bible specifically. When you think of having personal study in God's Word, it cannot be separate. And I know this sounds like a no-brainer, but I think there are times when people put this on the shelf because they love to read a certain author. It, it, it's still got to be time in the book, time in His Word. A second of the nuts and bolts of personal Bible study is to find a good Bible translation. I remember when I was a kid, and man, I, I first started reading the Bible. I was young, I don't know, 10, 12, somewhere in there maybe. And uh, all we had around the house was a King James Version. Well, um, uh, I, I, I dosed not speaketh of the King James English. I didn't understand half of what I read. And, and I was constantly going to my mom. I said, what does this mean? I think she got tired of me. She said, just be a preacher. I'm just kidding. She didn't really say that. <clears throat> but, but later, I, I found that there are some really good translations that are easy to understand and uh, for some of you, you may not be aware of that. When the Bible was written, it wasn't written in English. And it certainly wasn't written in King James English that came around in the 1600s. English, or the English language translations are just that. They're translations, but there's some very good ones. And so for what it's worth, I, I use the New American Standard Bible. It's the NASB. Another one that's very reputable is called the English Standard Version. It's more of a a newer modern translation that's very, very helpful for a lot of folks. It's, uh, again, the ESV. Some folks will use the New King James Version. Uh, again, it's a little more modern. New Living Translation, the NLT. And, uh, and then some would even use the, the NIV, the New International Version. It, it's written a little bit differently. It's not going to translate word for word. But if you're especially just starting in the Bible, the NIV may be helpful for you. It's written on a seventh grade level. It's very easy to follow and to understand. But I think at the end of the day, you want to find a translation that you can understand that's going to be beneficial. And they're so easy to find nowadays, obviously. Number three, find a good, some good study tools. This is, 
This is optional, I'd say. Um, the Bible speaks for itself. I think the best study tool that you can get would be a study Bible, one that has notes included. Now, they're not the Bible, right? Those notes that are written by somebody else. But it's kind of like having a little Bible teacher there with you. And in that study Bible, um, it kind of helps to understand and to explain. It's like having a lot of those guys, we can't pronounce their names from Nehemiah 8, running around inside your Bible, right? And they explain it and help you to understand it a little bit better. For some of you, this is so basic, you're thinking, Brooks, I've known this stuff for decades. Others of you, you didn't even know this exists. ESV Study Bible, I've got a hardback copy in my office, one of the best resources I've got. MacArthur Study Bible, loaded full of notes. Got a copy in my office, one of the best study Bibles I've ever had. One of the best tools you can get is a study Bible. Number four, set a time. If you're going to say, I want to have a personal Bible study and I want to really become a person of the book, I want this to be one of the nuts and bolts of my effective Christian life, set a time. It's one of the best things you can do. And I'll say it's going to be one of the hardest things that you'll do. The two biggest enemies of personal Bible study are number one, busyness. Number two, distraction. I live in both of those worlds, so I'm not exempt from that. All of our staff live in both of those worlds. We're not exempt from that. We live in the same world that you do. I rolled into town last night around 11 o'clock, went back to school to pick up Hannah after an out-of-town ball game. It didn't start until 7.30, two hours away. Needless to say, it was a little bit of a late night. It's the same world you live in. Our morning consists of Susie going one direction with a van with one or two children in it, one of our, two of our kids going off to school. I take whoever's left over and take them to the other school, right? And then it's off and running from there. I mean, we all live in the same world. And the two biggest, biggest enemies of your personal Bible study is going to be your busyness, much of which you cannot put aside, and distraction, much of which you carry in the form of a phone. And when you set a time and you treat it like an appointment with God, not to be rigid or legalistic, but when you say, this is my time, uh, you've seen those di- that, that, that car insurance um, commercial where they're driving safely and it's monitoring it. And they say, don't mess with my discount. You've seen those commercials? It's like, don't mess with my time. Don't get angry. That'd be somewhat unbiblical, I guess. But treat it like an appointment with God. Set a time and start there. Number five, decide on a plan. We've got plan- plans in our lobbies right now. We've got one that Jason put out called the F-260. Uh, I've been through this. It's 260 foundational passages of the Bible. Very simple. There's no commentary here. There are no notes. It's just a plan. If, you're, if you've got a smartphone, uh, online device, uh, the version has all kinds of Bible reading plans. Some you may have to be mindful of, but many of those plans are going to be very, very helpful. Plans exist all over the place. Decide a plan. Your plan may be, you know what, I'm going to read a chapter a day in the book of Matthew, and I'm going to finish it in less than a month. (laughs) That's a plan. Set a time and get going. Number six, read it to live it. Don't just read it to read it. Read it to live it. James would say not just to be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word. And then number seven, I would say if you're not currently engaged in personal Bible study, self-feeding on God's Word, just start. Start today. Set a plan. Start with five minutes. Don't try to jump in for 30 minutes or an hour. Start with five. Five minutes. Start the clock. Ask God to bring it to life. Jump in there. Read whatever you've got as part of your plan. And at the end of it, ask God to help you to live it. Thank Him for it. And then move on. Do five minutes the next day. And as you grow and mature, you'll add to that because you're going to want more. And if you once did that and put it away and you got a little bit distracted, you got a little bit busy, start again. Start again. It's okay. God forgives. God shows grace. But remember, we're not going to have an effective Christian walk separate from His Word.
So I don't know which of these seven little tips are beneficial for you. I'd say choose one today and make it a priority. And for those of you maybe that are just beginning to think through this whole Christian thing in the first place, remember that reading this book doesn't score points with God anyway. It helps us to know Him and to walk closely. But the way we get our sin forgiven and the slate wiped clean is when we come to the one this book is all about, and that's Jesus. And when we say, Jesus, would you forgive me of all my sin? And would you take what you did on the cross, apply it to my life, forgive me, and take over? And when you ask for that, he'll do it. And he'll change your life. Let's pray.